welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is Suzanne Powers, who sits atop the McCann Empire as their global president of the World Group and CSO. She's someone I've known for quite some time. And when I wonder about the future of our business and are we in good hands, can we have confidence in that next generation of leadership going forward? Suzanne is one of the people who I think of, uh, and she is truly that manifestation of what our industry needs and actually has right now, doing incredible work. And McCann, as an aside, Suzanne, is really the example I always give when I'm asked often about the future of the large agency networks, you know, and are their best days behind them? And my standard go-to answer is no, look at McCann. And when you look at the creative work that you're doing, the leadership team that you have, um, it really gives great comfort, I think, that the future is bright. So thanks so much for doing this. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you. Happy to be here and honored you want to talk to me. This is great. I'm excited. This is uh, this is terrific. So Suzanne, I'd love to go back and talk about your early days as a planner and where and how that background and how you kind of got there and how that laid a foundation for what would evolve as a fantastic career that you were still very much in the midst of. Yes. So um, I have been in the strategy side of the business for a very, very long time. Um, before that, I did two little things. One, I was a preschool teacher, and that does help you become a planner, by the way, because we do have to sort of mediate children many times. That's a bad thing to say, but I just said it out loud. Um, but secondarily, I um, started on the marketing side and I did shopping mall marketing and I got really bored of just changing out the signage between the different holidays. Um, but it did give me some foundational elements of planning, which was uh, research and analysis and traffic patterns and creativity. Um, and one day I called in sick and there was a, a this is, was the days when you would look for your next job in ad week. Remember the paper version where you'd actually flip through the jobs and, and you know, jobs wanted section. And I saw something right smack in the middle of the page and it said um, account planner wanted. And I thought, well, I don't even know what that is, but let me dive into it. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of people doing strategy. There wasn't a lot of planning in America because this was, you know, a, a British pursuit. And um, I applied for this job because it was all about, you know, research and understanding humans. And I have always been incredibly curious and or nosy, take your pick, um, and really trying to figure out what makes human beings tick has been just a, a life pursuit of mine. So when I saw the job spec, I thought that's something I'd love to do. And I always wanted to be in marketing. I always wanted to be in creativity. So that was a really nice combination for me of right brain, left brain. Um, and I thought I'd give it a shot. So I sent in a, a very strange cover note now that I think about it. And I got this job. And my first gig was at Lord Dentsu and Partners. Do you remember that company? I do. Pretty interesting, pretty interesting mashup of YNR, the Lord Group, um, you know, Dentsu as a backer. So I had all sorts of different influences within that job. And it was like taking a master class um, on speed because very quickly uh, I had to figure out all the different intricacies of, of being a planner with sort of the, the resources and stimuli and learning from those different companies all at once. So it was great for me. And 
planning evolved over time is such an essential part. I remember when the 4-H used to have a conference just for planners that was hugely and very well attended. Um, but that discipline really didn't evolve here. It evolved overseas and was relatively late to the game here. Yet now I can't imagine the industry without it. Yes, I, I agree. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think that as planning has gone global, there have been so many other flavors added to the strategy mix, right? So there's, there's the, the wonderful original flavor that came out of um, you know, the UK that was all about insight development and being the voice of the consumer and really trying to understand how to unlock, unlock brand strategies. And then you add flavors around, you know, understanding of technology, um, social strategy, digital strategy, technological strategy, data strategy, analytics. There's so many other flavors of strategy now um, that it continues to evolve. And I think that's, that's you know, the, the danger of that is you start to get distracted from the notion that strategy is in fact a creative pursuit because it is still a creative pursuit. It's just about using creativity to unlock business problems and to unlock solutions that can actually, you know, you know, drive forward with different types of creativity manifesting across the entire marketing ecosystem. Um, but the original, original strategy, you know, area was something that, you know, we all revered. And I still use so much of those fundamentals every single day, whether it's in my strategy role and working with strategists all over the world, or whether it's even in my president role where I'm applying strategy to our own company and to our own business and figuring out, you know, what is our mission taking us forward? How do you operationalize that? Um, and how do you actually connect those dots? That's all strategy. And it sounds like you could not have created a better sound set of fundamentals and a foundation than doing what you did so early in your career. Yeah, I got, I got lucky because as I said, I answered a very, very wonderfully worded, but a little bit mysterious ad <laughs> and fell into it. And then I had some wonderful mentors. You know, I had, I had mentors who, who taught me how to go through piles and piles of data and make sense of it. You know, pattern recognition, which is such a skill that I use to this day in, in a multitude of ways. And then I had mentors that were creative partners. You know, I've worked with some of the best creative people in the world. Um, in fact, at times I've probably taken a job only to work with a certain creative person or two. And that has just taught me to analyze things in a much more enlightened way. So I feel really fortunate from the variety of experiences I've had, um, the people I've gotten to work with and learn from. Um, and, you know, also the talent I hope I've helped cultivate along the way to take us all forward. Right. Which is a, a tremendous measure of success is what we're able to do to mentor, mentor others. Uh, so we're going to get, of course, to your tenure, which I think is coming up on almost eight years at McCann. But let's stay back a, a few years for just a little bit longer. You then had a terrific run at another great shop, TBWA. Yes, I did. And I, in fact, joined um, what I fondly think of as the mothership, although I'm sure people don't think of it that way. But, you know, Shiat Day LA, which as a strategist, as a planner, that was the place that you really wanted to try to get to. And I remember when I took that gig, I actually took a demotion. Um, I took a pay cut. I lost a parking spot. I was doing pretty well. <laughs> I just said, I've got to be at Shiat Day LA. I've got to go there and I've got to learn and I've got to really figure out what this magical thing is because they had that perfect combination of, you know, 
strategic rigor and understanding, but also incredible creativity. Um, so I, so I was really lucky to be there. I was lucky to work with um, incredible talents, both in the strategy group as well as the creative group. I mean, getting the chance to work with Lee Clow was a huge, huge career builder for me. But not just as a, I learned particular skills. I just learned about the humanity that he puts into everything that he touches, and um, I still use a lot of those lessons today. So that was about 11 years of my life. I did Shiat's ALA. Um, as I was there, we transformed into TBWA, um, much more global entity. We brought in some global pieces of business, which actually encouraged us to be um, much more of a global network. And I was a part of that and part of building out disruption as a, as a global approach um, and doing it on brands. Um, did a lot of work on Mars brands, which was incredible for me. Um, you know, Pedigree was one of the first global platforms uh, that I actually helped build with TBWA across the world with great client partners. And um, it was a really great combination, again, of, of incredible creativity, um, incredibly human-centric uh, work, and a platform that is still, you know, to my friends at BBDO, you're still living in that platform, just going to say, um, but it's such a such a wonderful, wonderful um, set of brands that I got to touch in my years. And again, 11, 11, I remember when I hit my 10th year at TBWA and the agency threw a little something. I was in New York at this time because I had moved to New York from L.A. Um, to actually do the global brands job. And there was a little little tiny party and somebody started chanting 10 more years, 10 more years. And I thought, my gosh, then I'll be 20 years in TBWA. Well, the next year I left not because of anything bad, but just for opportunity. Um, but it's, it's, it's an incredible company. I still look at them with pride and also with jealousy because they're doing amazing work, really yeah, amazing yeah, work. Just, yeah, great, great shop. So you mentioned Lee, and we were very proud a few years ago um, that he came and spoke at Advertising Week in New York. And I know he doesn't do a lot of that anymore. And his presence and charisma and knowledge, and you just feel when you're in the room with somebody like that, there's a certain glow that they have. Uh, who is some of the other mentors, and feel free to talk more about Lee, but who is some of the other great minds and mentors who you remember from that earlier part of your career? Yeah, you know, I, um, I have, I, I'm lucky I've had several, you know, I had, there is a wonderful, wonderful human, Don Popolars. I'm going way back, and he was a researcher um, at Lord Densu, and so I was brought in to be a planner and he was a researcher and I was really trying to understand the difference. And he was one of those people who could look at a complex, just pile of data and say, you know what it really is? And he'd always say this to me, you know what it really is, Suzanne? It's like a triangle. It's like this connects to this, which connects to this, and then it's all a triangle. And so I, I, I just thought, oh, that's so simple. But he really, really taught me to recognize patterns, to hunt for simplicity, an incredible mentor. Um, Lee, you know, Lee taught me to never lose the human speak. When we get really close to our clients, as many of us do, you start to take on some of the, dare I say, jargon or some of even the problems of the client organization. And you start to become so almost telegraphic because you're in their business and you're already editing with your creative partners. You're already saying, well, that's never going to work because of XYZ and that's never going to work. And Lee one day looked at me and he said, I don't even understand what you just said. Like you just sounded just like somebody who is actually manufacturing. I think it was rice at the time because it was Uncle Ben's. You sound like somebody who's making the rice and knows everything about that kernel. And he's like, just talk human speak to me. Tell me about why people want this stuff. And I just, I take that lesson um, with me and I, and I 
bestow that on other people because I think it's a big one. Um, I worked a lot with Jerry Graff um, and he taught me the element of the unexpected. But I'll tell you what, he is so strategic and we would have little arguments along the way where he'd say, I don't, I don't really have a strategy for this. And I'd say, Jerry, you have the strategy in you because you get this so much. You know, he got Snickers so much. He got Skittles so much. Like you don't even really, a piece of paper, helpful, but really he embodied what the strategy was for so many of the brands that I worked with um, him on. Um, and then obviously, you know, people along the way at Crispin was lucky enough to go there for a few years and learn from them. Again, in my constant pursuit of trying to figure out how to unlock creativity and how to understand it. So many wonderful people there. I was in the post Alex years, so I didn't have the benefit of that, but I certainly spent some great time with, you know, Jeff Benjamin, who is a dear friend to this day. Um, and he can make, he can make magic out of a coupon. You know, it's like, we're going to do a sampling program and Jeff would come back with something so ingenious. Um, and he's doing really great over at Tom Bros, And I'm so happy to see that, but, you know, Jeff is a dear friend and obviously Rob and Dave Rolf and Tiffany Rolf and Andrew Keller, like so many different flavors of creativity. You know, we often talk about strategy flavors. We don't talk so much about flavors of creativity and there are so many flavors of that. Um, and it's just, it's all magical, but my job is to unlock that, you know, as a strategist. So you got to figure out the keys to that, to those puzzles, you know? And you mentioned in that early part of your career, going back to Lord Densu, using data. Yes. You've been on the industry horse through the whole run of the evolution of technology. You know, when you started and when I started, you know, we were in the fax machines and every, you know, I still remember walking to J&R Music World down by City Hall and buying my first computer. It was an Amstrad PCW. I am certain that that no longer exists. And it was one of those days of outrage when Sharpton used to march on the subway tracks and they used to march in Borough Hall in Brooklyn because you could shut off the two, three, four and five. And I had to carry the computer over the Brooklyn Bridge home. Oh my God. Technology has changed so much. And what data means has changed so much. Reflect on what using data then meant to what it means today. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I remember, back to memories, I remember my first LexisNexis account. And as the, at times, lone strategist, that was like my account. So it was under my name and I had to use it very judiciously. Um, but for those listening, you wouldn't know what that is. But that was the way that we used the internet to search for data and to search for insights. So there you have it. Um, so, you know, I will say I probably approach data the same way today as I did then. And it doesn't matter how much it is or what sources we have, which now we have a multitude of sources. And in those days I was designing um, my own research, whether that was quantitative or qualitative, doing my own qualitative, I'm trained as a qualitative um, sort of you know, researcher and moderator and so on and so forth. So that might've been single source or double source or triple source, doesn't really matter. Um, today there is multiple sources. I still do the same thing, which is pattern recognition and looking for those themes and looking for those universal truths and hunting for the very critical differences so that we can figure out how to create and how to do so with uh, globality, but also nuance that's local. So what I would say is 
Um, anybody that comes to me and they say, I'm just so intimidated by data and what's our data and analytics approach and what do we do and how do we navigate all of this? The client has this data, we have that data. Um, you know, the media folks have a whole other set that they're using. It's all the same discipline. It's bringing it together and trying to find our way through so that we can get to some clarity and simplicity. That's where the powerful ideas come from. Um, so I guess I would say in answer to your question, navigating the complexity is the same to me as it was then, just using a multitude of different sources and experts, might I add. It's not all on, on an individual. It's We have experts that are in the area of technology. They're in, we have data and analytics experts. There are people who are experts at performance data, optimization. Um, there are experts who are driving deeper insights, whether that's anthropological, ethnographic, or even just truly understanding human behavior through our behavioral scientists. All of those different people help bring a much more enlightened approach to and usage of data than we ever had in the old days. It was just somebody sitting in a back room on their LexisNexis account and then Hoover's database. Don't forget about that. Right, right, exactly. I remember all that. So you, let's stay here for a minute because I think it's such an interesting topic. And you talked about Lee and humanity and speak to me and human speak. And uh, to me, a lot of the best creative decisions that we make are ones that we make on gut. And it just feels right for the client, for the project, for the moment. Leading the global organization, you've got a lot of younger people, a lot of people who grew up with technology. I think I'm a little older than you. I certainly did not grow up with technology. And I still, you know, struggle with it to some degree. Do you worry looking at creative on the whole in the entire landscape that we are doing to creative what baseball is sort of doing with analytics where you've now got so much data and all the manager's decisions are largely dictated by the analytics. Do you worry about that? Is that an issue or are we able to keep that at bay where it belongs informing but not taking away gut and the human part of creativity? Wow, that's the biggest question. Um, and I love it because I will tell you, I've been in a couple of situations in the last couple of years um, and maybe even a few years back. Whenever there's any kind of new technology or new data approach, I think we all get really excited about it and go, that's going to be the thing. I mean, I don't remember a few years past, we did an experiment with an AI um, copywriter out of Japan. And, you know, we thought, okay, well, that, that could replace, you know, a copywriter maybe. Well, no, it can't. It just cannot. Um, the serendipity, the spontaneity, the what I like to call mixology of different teams jumping on something cannot be replicated um, with the same level of, back to your point, humanity, gut. And gut is interesting, right? Because there's gut that is just instinctive. And then there's gut that is, there's instinct combined with years of experiences or life experiences or outward pursuits, dare I say, other than what we do every single day that helps create an informed gut. So even with the youngest people on our teams around the world, I always talk to them about, you've all got some informed gut. Like, first of all, don't ever lose touch with the instinct, but know that your instinct is informed by all of your experiences that you're having. And that's an informed gut. 
So you've got to trust it. And maybe sometimes you're then just using data to vet out those hypotheses that come from gut. And sometimes you're using it to find things because you don't really know where to start. There's so many different ways to use, again, this multitude, uh, this, this, this huge amount of data that we have at hand. I have been in a couple of experiences though, um, I will tell you where sometimes we get so excited about the data, we go, oh, that's so good. We're gonna be able to tell the creatives exactly what to make. That's where I think the magic starts to go away a little bit. And we have to be careful. We have to be cognizant of that. There are certain parts of the marketing ecosystem where that's actually great because as we're personalizing messages and as we are able to understand what would be more compelling to someone, maybe some of those adjustments and optimization, as I mentioned before, can and should be driven by machine learning. But in terms of the broader sort of approach to how to, again, find those problems, unlock the solutions, that's where humans really have to still be playing and driving it. Um, when we lose that, I would be, A, I'd be very sad for our business, but I also think we'll lose some of that uh, just creativity and spontaneity and just the wonderful things that surprise and delight us still have to come from that human machine interaction. And I say machine based on the data that we get from them rather than just purely the machine. Yeah, and, and I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's also why you can't replace the value. You know, you're sitting in your office today, I'm in my office today. And I understand that the future of work is gonna look, look a little bit different and that there's gonna be increased flexibility and, and I'm all in favor of that. And I've been surprised as anyone at how well things have worked you know, the past 14, 15 months, I, I would have bet the other way. Um, but there is something about human interaction and sitting around a table, sitting around, uh, you know, at a bar after work, brainstorming ideas, you cannot replace that. No, no. I mean, that's, I think what I, what I miss the most, the surprises and the left turns don't happen as much when we don't have that space together. Um, I, am, I, like you, am absolutely kind of inspired by how we've been. I mean, we're a very large, as you know, global company. Um, we have several agencies within our company, um, different areas of expertise, all sorts of different capabilities. What we've been able to do on Teams, which is our platform, because we're the Microsoft partner, obviously, um, and create has blown my mind. That said... I know and talk to our teams and we've done some survey work even within our own organization. What we are missing is that serendipity. What we are missing are those moments um, of connectivity as well. And uh, you can have it virtually, but it's a, it's, a bit, it's a bit different, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's intensity to living in your screens all day. There's, uh, you know, there, there's, even if you're dancing enthusiastically because you're in love with some idea, which we do, or I do, maybe that's just me, um, you know, you're still missing the accidental moments. The, I just ran into you in the hallway and I am mulling this thought and you can tell by my face and my energy. And I'm going to jump in there because I had another thought too. John Mescal and I joke about, we used to have our mornings at the Nespresso machine. We'd make our coffees together. And who knows what comes out of our mouth when that's happening. And I'm making my weird mixture and he's making his weird mixture. And we're talking, whoever knows, but we miss that. We've tried to do it virtually, by the way. <laughs> and it's just not the same. It really isn't. Right. No, I, I couldn't agree more as well. So let's talk about that 
role and what it's been like, your ascension to a global role uh, and the timing of the past year and change is interesting to say the least. Talk, talk about the challenge you've had leading a global organization at a time when you know your travel no longer go takes you to JFK or Newark or Heathrow or or uh, you know Narita or or anyone else. You're lucky if you get to go to you know New Jersey or Connecticut these days. <laughs> it's so true. You know, I, I'm lucky in a couple ways. I had um, nearly 20 years of, of of global under my belt, which is great because as TBWA turned global and looked around for some some people who wanted to help do that. I was in the middle of it and I'm so thankful for that. Now, what that means is I've been on more planes than I can count and I've been in more um, countries than I can count and that's great and it's huge background to come into a job like I have today. Um, also, you know, I had to your point, I'm almost eight years within McCann World Group. And what that means is a lot of the people that I'm staring across the screen to I know, and I've been in their markets and I've been with them. We happen to have an incredible um, team. Many of them have been with us for so, so long. So it's all people I know. And we do have quite a bit of shorthand. And those that we brought in during the pandemic, they have felt immediately like part of this family. It's We've gotten really lucky with some of the wonderful new talent that we brought in. Um, but I think it, it's hard to run a global organization from a screen. I am missing being on a plane and landing and immersing into a culture, but more immersing into whatever that office is going through. I always try to make every trip a real working trip. You know, key client challenge, let's do it. Key conversation with our with our teams, let's do it. So I'm really a sleeves rolled up kind of global leader. And I miss that, but we can do it on the screens. And and I have found that I can cover, I, I, I you know, it's not a joke when I say, um, you know, I'm really sorry, I have to jump to another meeting. What I'm typically meaning is I'm really sorry, I'm going to go to Brazil now, or I'm really sorry, I'm going to go to London now. I'm certainly moving faster because I'm not having to do the plane rides, um, but I do miss it. I do miss it. You know, some fundamentals of running um, a global company like this, we have a mission that we hold very dear. It connects us as a company. Our mission is to help brands earn a meaningful role in people's lives. We have invested in, um, you know, an operating system that helps us do that for the work that we do on behalf of our clients. We use that tool set and approach on ourselves as an organization. So there's so much that is connective tissue for us as a global company. And I do believe that's why when you're new, you are inculcated into that and you learn that and you become part of that operating system quite quickly. But that helps us run the global organization without those fundamentals in place, you know, a mission, a vision, values the operating system, the tools, the approaches that every agency within McCann World Group uses, we would be missing a lot of beats right now. You know, a lot. Uh, no, the, the speed of adaptation. And I guess that's, that's humans, right? We're resilient. I, I, I don't know the movie that well, but I remember in Jurassic Park, there was a line, you know, life finds a way. And I think that's what we've all seen in ways that were completely unimaginable were unpredict unpredictable. And how has it been for you? I've had a tough time the past year at moments, and I've gotten a lot better lately as the light at the end of the tunnel gets brighter. Um, I you know, never imagined that I would cry when I got vaccinated, but I did. I didn't realize how much 
how 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 much it would mean, how I would feel that um, sense of uh, you know that this was going to end. Yeah. But I had a really tough time emotionally for months and was really depressed about, you know, and my job is to be up when, you know, you do what you do, you do what I do. You're supposed to be, you know, manager of the football team, you know, a baseball team or coach of the football team. Um, and you've got to be up all the time. So I, I would for my people and our, you know, clients and partners, but inside, you know, I went through a real tough period of struggle. How, how did you do throughout? Did you have any of those tough moments? Oh my goodness. You know, in the beginning, I, you know, it's funny, we did, we did a tremendous, we were still doing it, but we did a tremendous amount of research with Truth Central. We did a COVID and culture kind of piece of work that we're doing. I think we've done 11 waves of it now. Um, And this research showed us the stages of the pandemic that humans go through, right? So there's that first stage of denial. And I'm sure you you had this, I was like, oh, I'll be back in two weeks. I'm just going to grab a quick bag leaving the office now, see you in a couple of weeks. You know, the denial that something was happening, which is a human survival mechanism, we now understand. You know, when you're in the denial stage, you don't realize that that's just your coping capability, right? But you go from denial to kind of acceptance and then um, to, frankly, I'm gonna add a stage being terrified, right? And then um, as you go through that, to your point about Jurassic Park, you start to adapt. You start to adapt to strange things like I'm procuring food for my family. Oh my gosh, I found the toilet paper I need. I feel successful. Like there's so many different nuances to these stages. And then we slowly but surely start to realize there is a light. And for me personally, I lived every one of those phases. Um, I happened, my husband and I happened to both get sick in the beginning. Um, you know, in that March, April, pretty dark period in New York City, when it was not a person on the street, except for ambulances, that was us, we, we went ahead and got COVID right then. And uh, we just didn't know a lot. So it was terrifying. And meanwhile, to your point, um, here we are with a global organization. And I am known as Susie Sunshine, it is true. Um, so, you know, whilst we were sick and caring for one another, I was still you know, just really, I was actually also using the power and energy of the organization to carry me through. They were optimistic. We set up some things in the beginning that helped us problem solve at scale. And very quickly, one thing we set up was called the solution room and you could throw a problem in there. And then different folks from around the world could swarm that problem very quickly because we were using the benefit of teams again. And that bolstered me, honestly. Like, I know it sounds horrible that here here I am sick and, and worried about huge existential things and, and scary, scary things, but also like kind of with one eye looking and seeing what's going on. And I'm watching teams from all over the world help somebody solve a client challenge or help somebody pay, figure out how we could put a point of view to the world that would give people some hope. And it was so just bolstering, for lack of a better word, to me, to watch Um, these incredible humans jump on things like that. Um, But to your point, I went through terrified, denial, terrified. Okay. It's going to be okay. My husband has, is, is even more optimistic than me. And he was like, Suzanne, of course it's going to be fine. I'm like, it is not, (laughs) it is over. Um, But, you know, I think it's, it's resilience. You know, humans are incredibly resilient. We are problem solvers. Our profession is problem solving. So I think we used all of those kind of skills without even realizing we were using them um, to keep one foot in front of the other and breathing in and breathing out and keep on moving towards something, you know? Um, but it's been hard. It's been hard. 
Yeah, and a great answer. So a big part of what you're doing, working with your teams all across the globe, is to deliver great work for clients. That never changes. Talk about the challenges of the last year and give us some of the successes. You know, I, I always think that, you know, no matter how much people talk about the importance of technology in our industry, and it's certainly you know, we've watched the same rise of technology together. We started Advertising Week in 2004, you know, before there was a Facebook, before there was YouTube, before there was an iPhone, before there was Android. None of those things existed. But to me, it still comes down to the people. And the other part of the McCann story that I'll always tell when asked about, you know, the future of the big agency networks is, well, it's because of the people. When you look at the leaders of the company, Harris, when he was there, now Bill, Chris McDonald, yourself, Jeremy, there's a reason why they're so successful. And I'd love you to share some of the stories of the past year or so and some of the ways that McCann has been able to you know, deliver work for clients at a time when I think it's fair to say the stakes have been a little bit higher. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been tough, and we've we've watched our clients. That research that I mentioned helped us so much because we also were watching our clients go through those stages themselves as humans, and then their organizations actually having to adjust to those stages in different markets. You know, starting with APAC, which was far ahead of the Western world and how they were handling things. We've watched what's happened to human attitudes and behaviors. So that kind of insight work helped us incredibly. It helped us figure out the right type of work to do and where to do it, um, how to have the right tone, which, you know, sometimes sometimes you get it wrong, but hopefully most of the time, at least if you've got your ear to the ground, you got it right. And I think that's where the global companies have an advantage. They are everywhere. They are in the markets. They are going through things as everybody is. So we really tapped into that network to help us figure out how to do work. We also, as everybody did, really tried to play with different ways to produce things different ways to make things. Um, we've, as I'm sure almost everybody has experimented with, we have, for Microsoft, obviously they're the teams, uh, you know, they're the creator of teams. We've, we've shot things for them only on teams to talk about teams. Like these are like real live product demonstrations because we're living it. And having that delivered in a genuine tone has worked very well for us. Um, one of the things that I was proudest of in the early days was, uh, I don't know if you remember this, we had Eva Longoria um, shoot a demo for covering her own grays in her own bathroom for L'Oreal. And that was such a moment. It's like, here's this amazing, huge global brand that is usually so filled with beauty. And just like, and, and here she was saying, no, look at the camera, like putting her face up to the camera with her own phone, by the way. Look at these grays, I'm doing it. That was an incredible, incredible piece of work for us. And um, it bolstered our company actually to see that we could do that. And, and it bolstered us that that brand was so open to experimenting. Um, so we've done a whole bunch of different things, you know, both functionally in terms of how we make the work that we make and also psychically and psychologically by trying to figure out how to make the work that would land in culture in the right way. Um, you know, so, so I'm quite proud of everybody, but there's quite a bit of experimentation and to your point about technology, we are laggards. It's so funny in this industry. Like we do it well for everybody else, our clients. And then for us, it's like, oh, I'm not going to do a global meeting here. I'm going to get on a plane. Like, come on, 
this is kind of illuminating what we've been able to do through technology and through some ingenuity. And we just were, I don't know why it took us so long. I'm going to take a lot of these lessons forward. And I know we as an organization certainly are. Yeah, I think the last trip that I took, business trip was last, we had advertising week, uh, LATAM in Mexico in March. So it was definitely there, uh, March of 2020. That was the last, the only live one that we did in calendar year 2020. And a couple of weeks before that, I was in London. And I remember I went to Johannesburg for a day. And we would always, and now it's like, what was, what was I doing? Oh my God. I would go to Brussels for the day. I've gone to, um, I think that might be one of my farthest day trips for a 45 minute meeting. Certainly done it to London a lot. I'm very familiar with that. Get ready in the lounge situation and turn around and come back. That's crazy. Why did that? That's nuts. Yeah. I think, I think that, I mean, the two things I think that will stick is like, we would always invite some big international keynoters to go to like a place like Sydney. You know, I think the last one we had, Fernando Machado was there with us and Jeff Goodby. And I think those things will now be done over the screen, which is probably, which is probably fine. And um, I think those crazy business trips, the short ones like that for one, you know, I think we will be a little smarter about that, but I, I don't think I minded at the time though. No, I, well, I also thought that was, you know, what you did to do business. You know, you need to be there for certain things. And even if it is 45 minutes or an hour, that was typically something with a CEO or a CMO. That's very important to spend that time, but it is pretty crazy. And look at how much more I would just say um, egalitarian it's been, you know, you, you can work with anybody, anytime. I mean, time zones are a little bit wacky. I will say, um, I'm right now doing doing some judging and one of the members of my jury is in Australia and she's really got the bad end of the stick with the timing. And I'm like, we need to kind of adjust some of this stuff. But otherwise, you really can you really can can travel, quote unquote, much farther and faster because we're traveling through these screens. And I think, you know, putting brains together is is a little bit different coming out of this, I think. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. You also did some great work that I remember from the past year with Verizon. And, and I think a lot of great stuff for MasterCard also. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, interestingly, both of those are huge brands, important brands. I mean, uh, you know, Verizon, an important brand when you're living through a pandemic, the role of connection, the role of little, you know, we did some, some lovely work that was actually um, just really trying to entertain people and give people a little bit of light, you know, even the very, very early work of doing some of the um, concerts that we did, which was incredible. But just, again, if you think about it, those are product demonstrations for, for what Verizon in fact does, but there's such an emotional connection to that, particularly in this time. And, and in the case of MasterCard, we've done some, some wonderful things to know, I think what I personally think to promote a world that we all want to um, not get back to, but move forward to, you know, if you think about driving renewal and the path to renewal for all of us as humans and for the world and brands roles within that, you know, MasterCard has done a lot of wonderful things around, you know, accessibility, around acceptance, around just making it a much more, again, egalitarian world. Um, And it's incredibly powerful. And that, that redefines the notion of priceless, doesn't it? I mean, that's exactly what it should be as we all move forward. So 
So really, we have wonderful client partners in in both regards. I would say, well, in all regards, we've been we've been in it together. You do feel a difference, right? When you're when you're really just tackling these challenges together, arm in arm with your clients. Yeah. So you have the benefit of perspective, having worked um, and touched the Densu family, the Omnicom family, the MDC family at Crispin, and now the IPG family. And IPG, more so than any other player in our industry, was very early to the game in understanding the importance of both genders to the success equation. And in particular, led by Michael, really embraced women leaders. And you were one of those. Talk about that and what you observed when you first learned, if you will, that hey, that was something that your parent company cared about. Talk about that way back when and how IPG has continued now beyond gender, of course, to you know all colors of the rainbow, race, ethnicity, et cetera, but very early to the game, much more so than anyone else in embracing senior women in leadership roles. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's interesting when you consider um, a new job as I was around eight-ish years ago, let's put it that way. Um, and, and, and being open, I guess what I, when I say consider, when you are open to something new and you start going through that analytical process, there are a lot of, there are a lot of things that come into play. There's what type of work do they do? What type of clients do they have um, within their family that you think you can do some great work with and that you'd want to dive into? Um, what's the leadership like? And what are some of the foundational values and beliefs that they stand for? And I, I've always been impressed with IPG's very, to your point, early stance, um, particularly on female leadership. So it was a plus in the column for me. That said, I've always wanted to have um, a job where I feel like I'm the best candidate. So I never felt it was, a oh, we got to go get a woman. It was not that. It was more about like, this is a great mix of people. And I love that they are championing this. So it's amazing. And Michael was a, was a very early innovator in this. And now Philippe continues and really pushes it forward. And I, I, I feel um, very proud to be in a company like that. And I think it's important for our talent to know that, to know that we stand for that and to know that we are really pushing forward with, um, you know, creating the most consciously inclusive cultures as well within the agencies. That's a huge piece to me, but it is part of the decision criteria. And more and more, it is part of the decision criteria of people who join an organization. Um, and we have um, supercharged that within McCann World Group. We do, we've done something now twice that we call Day for Meaning. And Day for Meaning is when we turn our own tool set on ourselves as an organization. And we use the same things we would use to understand and unpack and solve client problems. We, we chose the problem, which is diversity and inclusion um, and engagement. And we said, okay, if we, were gonna, if we were gonna workshop it on ourselves, what are some of the solutions we'd come up with? And we literally shut down, I'm saying physically before the pandemic, cause we stopped, you know, we shut down the offices. During the pandemic, we did it virtually. And we spent a day dedicated to this. And really pulling through the insights around diversity, because it is different by different parts of the world. There's a different definition. Pulling through those insights, doing particular exercises and workshops amongst all of our employees, no matter what they do in the organization, to say, okay, what are some of the things from the micro to the macro that we can change 
to create the conditions where everybody thrives, everybody feels that they belong. And I think doing something very foundational like that, but also with the entire employee population, it, we don't do it just because, oh, that's going to let them know we care. We do it because we actually need to fundamentally change as an industry. And we need to use our own workforce to help us do that. We're in a creative business. And if we can't apply that to ourselves to solve our big problem, what are we doing here, right? So that's, I mean, I, I look to, you know, my fellow leaders, you know, to, to do that and to focus on it is critical. And now, you know, Bill, as our CEO, this is one of his top five priorities. It's probably the number one of his top five priorities of driving it forward to make sure that, again, we have conditions where anyone feels and everyone feels they belong and that we have the right mix of perspective, perspectives and talents. Um, but we, we all have a long way to go in this business. I mean, we are not there yet. And some of it is about the ways we recruit. Some of it is about who we attract to this business and who we, more importantly, don't attract. And that's an important thing for us to be really thinking through. But when I think about, you know, humans and they and what they value at their core, creativity, ingenuity, uh, curiosity, like these are human values. So we should be able to use those things to create those conditions that we all need, need to create. Yeah, I guess it all comes back to that notion of humanity. Of course. Yes. Yes, yes. And how do we how do we think we can make the most powerful work on the planet if we don't embrace this? That's just a non-starter, you know? And and why wouldn't we want to talk to all of our potential customers? That's right. Yeah. So Suzanne, this has been terrific. Just to wrap, you are now in the high councils of power of (laughs) one of the iconic, if not the most iconic agency brands that our country has ever produced and arguably that the world has ever produced. McCann, you know, that's advertising when I think of it at its core. Take us behind the curtain and some of the conversations that you and Bill and Chris and Jeremy and the other leaders of the company are having as you start to plot and plan for a post-pandemic world where we are getting back out there and looking ahead at 22 and 23 and beyond. I know you're a, a planner. So I'm sure that you're looking ahead. Take us behind that curtain and into the room where you're talking about, you know, what the next year or so is going to look like. Yeah, you know, it's, um, of course, I'm over planning everything. Knowing from this year, the biggest lesson is the best laid plans can go awry in two seconds. But all of that said, you know, I, I think importantly for us is, you know, in McCann World Group, we have these incredible, incredible agencies, whether it is McCann um, Advertising or MRM or Momentum um, or McCann Health or, or Kraft, which is an incredible production powerhouse for us. All those different companies um, are and need to continue to be best in their field. If we don't do that, we can't offer our clients the most integrated solutions. So we have a little tiny little saying, and this is the behind the the sort of scenes little trick that we have. We have a little saying that we use internally, which is just simply put, yes, and. And that's our approach to everything. There's optimism in that. There's humanity in that. There's simplicity in that. But it is a complicated endeavor to pull off. It means we have to have, you know, the best specialized service for whatever a client may need. And we also have to have a wildly large array of things that we can integrate for also whatever that client may need. So 
us being able to answer to any kind of query or brief or challenge or opportunity, yes. And <laughs> I'm going to look at that differently. I'm going to add something to it. I have a capability or a specialty that you maybe didn't know I had. You know what, by the way, if I put a behavioral scientist next to a doctor, next to an incredibly prosaic writer, we're going to get something different out of that. So that's a lot of what we are playing with. We're playing with mixology. We're playing with different architecting of these different types of teams. And as we come out of the pandemic, that really affects our cadence, our ways of working. What are the moments of togetherness for teams like that? What are the moments where they need to be deeply individual, deeply specialized? And how do we reflow the work process accordingly, which then, of course, affects you know, return to office. I'll never say return to work because we've been working, but return to office, the role of physical space, the role of how all of our people connect as we've been talking about. But this little notion of yes and, again, it seems simple. There's a complexity to executing that and operationalizing it, but it is something that we're really leaning into and having it affect how we think about everything moving forward, people, process, product, profile, all of it. Fantastic. That's a great answer. All right. So let's wrap with a salt, real softball here. <laughs> we are both big global travelers. Collectively, we've added no frequent flyer miles to our accounts the past year or so. Tomorrow, you can be anywhere in the world. Anywhere. Where would you like to be? Well, it's a hard one. If I go with my emotional response, it's London because family is there. My husband, as you know, is from London and we, t we miss our friends and family terribly. And I miss my colleagues in the office incredibly. Um, my, if I can do two, my other one would definitely be Tokyo. Like I truly, truly adore and love um, Japan so much. And um, also miss my colleagues there, but there's just something about that city that I find incredibly just, I don't know, it just warms my heart and feeds my soul. So those would Great. be my two. Great answer. Well, if we can work it out concurrent with business trips, of course, not just for us, but if we could work it out. So we have you in London at Advertising Week Europe, we're in Tokyo at Advertising Week Asia, two of my favorite cities as well. We'd love to have you. And this was an absolute joy to talk to you. So thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. Appreciate it again.